I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. This is episode two, and I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is the mighty food, Jeff Goad. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Jeff, what are we going to be talking about this week? Well, today we're doing Robert E. Howard's Conan. This is number one in the Lancer Conan book series. It is a collection of short stories, some by Robert E. Howard, and some of them are written as collaborations between Lynn Carter and L. Sprague de Camp. And a few of them were unfinished fragments that uh, were then later finished by either L. Sprague de Camp or Lynn Carter. And Hoy, do you want to tell us a little bit about uh, the history of this collection? Sure. This was uh, published in 1967 originally by Lancer Paperbacks. Initially, they were not numbered, but I see you have a numbered copy there, so Mm -hmm. it's uh, later printing. Yeah, this one's from 1973. Okay. And uh, Lancer eventually went out of business before they were able to uh, print the whole series, so they Ace Ace Paperbacks picked up the series and finished it out. This Lancer series is notable for uh, introducing Conan to the wider public. Uh, This is the first time they were published not in hardcover or in the pulps and uh, have the iconic Frazetta covers on um, 11 out of the 13, I believe. Mm. Yeah, yeah. this cover's amazing. Here you have Conan battling Thak, the, the red-cloaked ape man from Rogues in the House. That is a terrific story, and uh, that cover is absolutely iconic. Mm-hmm. And within the book itself, we've got several short stories. It starts off with an introduction by L. Sprague de Camp, and he talks about Robert E. Howard and his place within heroic fiction. He discusses how Clark Ashton Smith, H.P. Lovecraft, and Robert E. Howard were all pen pals, discusses how William Morris pioneered the genre in the 1880s, and Lord Dunsany and E.R. Edison developed it further in the 1900s. He discusses how Sword and Sorcery began to appear in Weird Tales and Unknown Worlds, which were two literary pulp magazines. And the people who were writing Swords and Sorcery fictions within those pulp magazines were Robert E. Howard, Clark Ashton Smith, Henry Kuttner, C.L. Moore, Fritz Leiber, and the Harold Chase stories, which he co-wrote with Fletcher Pratt, are also included in those literary magazines. And then he discusses how J.R.R. Tolkien's success was responsible for a revival in the genre. Now, it's interesting to me that he was not writing about the contemporary uh, adventure fiction because clearly uh, Howard was writing a lot of sort of historical fiction and prior to reading the Conan books. So that's interesting to me that he wasn't writing about um, Talbot Mundy or um, uh, Harold, uh, Howard Fast and some of the other notable writers that, that were contemporaneous. So he's, he's just drawing the line through the fantasy, not through necessarily the adventure and historical fiction. That's true. Yeah. And then after the introduction, there is a letter to a person named P.S. Miller that is published. And the reason why the letter is interesting is in it, Robert E. Howard discusses the, the internal chronology of Conan and how the stories over time, how you can put them in order to show Conan from a young man until Conan is the, the, the rugged old king of Aquilonia. 
uh, places them in, in their proper order, I guess. And specifically, the Lancer series is an attempt to uh, put those stories in that order and as opposed to the order of original publication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the very first story, which is apparently the, verse, the very first story in the, the young saga of Conan, according to the Lancer books, is one that's not even written by Robert E. Howard. It was a collaboration between Lynn Carter and Elspeth de Camp, and it's The Thing in the Crypt. And just quickly, Conan escapes from slavery. He seeks shelter in a cave. He finds there's a mummy in there. He steals its sword, and then they fight. Do you find this is a good uh, opening introduction to Conan? No, it's not. And uh, and I, I was in, granted I read this on Wikipedia, so who knows? But I was reading that it wasn't even originally a Conan story. It was something Lynn Carter had written for his Thongar the Barbarian series that then they rebranded as the first in the Conan stories. Uh, ever pragmatic that Lynn Carter. <laughs> The next story is then The Tower of the Elephant, which is a true Robert E. Howard story. It's it's a fantastic Conan story, which we'll go to in detail in a moment. Uh, but quickly, Conan's out drinking. He decides to rob an impenetrable sorcerer's tower. He instead, uh, or not instead, while he's doing this, he finds this tortured kind of half-man, half-elephant demon god from outer space who has been absolutely... Uh, tortured and harassed by this evil sorcerer who's trying to steal his powers, and Conan helps him get his revenge. The next story is a fragment that Robert E. Howard had written that Elsprague de Camp finished, and it is The Hall of the Dead. Conan is pursued by a soldier. He stumbles into an abandoned ruined city that has this ginormous slug roaming around, killing things. Ah. Um, he steals more treasure, finds right. more mummies. Does he get a giant bowl of salt to throw on the slug? <laughs> he does not, actually. He just kind of uh, uh, ends up toppling over a giant statue onto its head. Okay. Then there is another proper Robert E. Howard Conan story, actually two in a row. The first is The God in the Bowl, in which this collector of priceless relics is murdered in his home his guards find Conan there and they accuse him of the murder. But then by the end, they discover he didn't do it because the the entity that did was slithering around, killing them off as well. And it's a female-headed serpent that was in one of his priceless relics. This one is a very interesting one, and, and we'll talk about it in greater detail. But I think the characterization of Conan is not exactly what you would expect. Mm, I would agree with that. Then we have Rogues in the House, which is Robert E. Howard. And... In that one, a, an aristocrat rescues Conan after he's thrown into the dungeons after a night of drinking. And Conan ends up in the sewers of the city uh, helping out this aristocrat who's trying to kill this man who's trying to kill him. And this man is this, the, red, the red priest. And they discover that the red priest has this, this ape man named Thak. And Thak is killed off the servants and taken the red priest's identity and together they end up slaying Thak, the ape man. Uh, the red priest turns on them and then Conan throws a chair at his head and kills the red priest. Yes. And um, there's uh, more political factions. There's a, there's a lot in play in this story for a surprisingly compact story. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's not very long and there's so much information in there. Then the last two stories are not true Conan canon. Uh, the next one is The Hand of Nurgle, or Nurgal, 
Um, that one is a Robert E. Howard fragment that Lynn Carter finished. In it, there's a big battle. There's like these shadowy bats. Uh, but then it starts to feel very kind of good versus evil as Conan discovers this golden talisman, but the evil sorcerer has this evil talisman called the Hand of Nergal. And the two end up like, the evil thing has a big black spirit that emanates from it, and then the good talisman has a big golden one, and then they have a big battle. That would seem to be a fundamental mischaracterization of the Conan uh, mystique. Maybe more appropriate to a Solomon Cain story. Yeah, I agree, because good versus evil, I don't really feel like there really are... In, in my experience with Conan, which is 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 limited, um, my my impression is that the arcane forces of goodness are not really entities that exist in the Conan world. They certainly don't seem to be personified. Mm-hmm. And then in the final story, this is one that Howard had nothing to do with. It was another collaboration between Lynn Carter and Elsprague de Camp. The book opens with one and ends with one, and it's called The City of Skulls. In it, Conan survives a battle. He's one of the very few who do survive this. He's taken prisoner by the people who they were fighting. He is sentenced to a life of slavery by this short, fat, toad-like god king. And then he ends up interrupting this big ritual where the god king has a naked woman tied up to an altar, and he's about to consummate their marriage publicly. And in doing so, this gigantic green statue comes alive, Conan kills the little god king, and then the statue stops moving. End of story. So those are the stories we're reading, we're we're discussing today. Terrific. Uh, I am uh, going at this in a slightly different direction. Uh, I am uh, reading the Robert E. Howard stories that are in uh, the Del Rey collection called uh, The Coming of Conan the Sumerian. Uh, This was uh, in the early 2000s, and was actually originally a hardcover um, limited edition from Wandering Star. And then Del Rey picked it up for trade paperback publication. Has some uh, terrific Mark Schultz illustrations. Um, for those of you who are into the uh, comic book universe, he was the creator of Xenozoic Tales and has done a lot of illustrations since then. Um, I would say that I'm doing this because I'm a purist and that these stories are <laughs> Robert E. Howard only and in publication order. But it could just be that I was lazy enough that I did not want to go to hunt, hunt down a copy of Conan on the used market. And I will also defend Hoy's decision to do it this way because when the Appendix N book club first started, as I mentioned in episode zero, the books we were reading, the, the, the selections were different. And one of our very first selections was the Delray coming of Conan the Sumerian. So Hoy and I had already met and already discussed this, that particular collection of stories in person. So then later on, when I revised the list to go spe- uh, to focus specifically on the 50s, 60s, and 70s paperbacks, it makes sense that maybe he didn't want to go back and reread stories that he'd mostly read only to get these Elsprague de Camp and Lynn Carter additional stories, which frankly aren't that good. Uh-huh. Uh, I will also add that The Coming of, Sumer- uh, Coming of Conan the Sumerian is still in print. Um, and actually, a lot of Robert E. Howard stuff is in the domain, public domain, although the public domain copies are usually from copies from Weird Tales, and the, the uh, Del Rey series is, uh, features corrected texts from his manuscripts or whatever the best text to, uh, that was that was available at the time. 
Yeah, if you're looking to read the Conan stories and you don't necessarily want to do it the way that we're doing it, the Delray collections are a fantastic way to do it. They're put out in publication order. They're 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 beautiful. They're beautiful objects. I do recommend them. And also, I realized that in episode zero, when Hoy had asked me what Appendix N I had read prior to starting the book club, I had said that I had only read Tolkien and a little bit of Lovecraft. I'm realizing that's not true because I had also read The Coming of Conan the Sumerian collection prior to starting the book club. And I had also read the first two or three of the Fafford and Grey Masters stories. So I did have some experience with Conan prior to coming to the book club. Uh, certainly uh, not the uh, entirely self-referential fiction of the uh, mid-90s and onwards. <laughs> so now we're going to head on over to the library and discuss this further. But before we do, we are going to discuss our word of the day. Scintillation. 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 Thank you. And scintillation is on page 65 of the book here. And in it, it says... At a distance, their different gleams had seemed to merge into a pulsing white glare. But now, at close range, they shimmered with a million rainbow tints and lights, hypnotizing him with their scintillations. And scintillations basically just means sparkles. Have we found this used in a high Gygaxian context, or is it just seems like something that he would have used? I believe we have, in the scintillating robes. Uh-huh. There you go. And now we're going to head on over to the library. All right, so we will be discussing the first story, The Tower of the Elephant. So, Jeff, tell us more about the elephant. <laughs> well, I had a lot of fun with The Tower the Tower of the Elephant. It's, it's a really good story. And also, I, I, the first time I read it, I was really surprised because the elephant man himself, who is Yag Kosha, is not even from earth like he tells conan that he is from a from from the many worlds and from some outer planet in fact i have the the area where he says this too yeah there are many worlds besides this earth and life takes many shapes i am neither god nor demon but flesh and blood like yours and then he says long ago i came to this planet with many others of my world from the green planet yag that's great. I think, again, uh, we're thinking pure sword and sorcery, uh, sword and sandal almost, and yet here we have a strong element of science fiction coming in. Mm-hmm. And um, that's uh, maybe not as well known. Uh, maybe it's pretty well known now among fandom, but the you could draw a direct line connection between the Conan stories and the Cthulhu mythos mm-hmm. um, through Robert E. Howard's um, starting as a pen pal with uh, Howard, Howard uh, Howard Phillips, H.P. Lovecraft, um, and that they were very, very close friends and frequently exchanged notes and drafts. Yeah, the Robert E. Howard Conan stories, the Clark Ashton Smith stories, and H.P. Lovecraft, you know, as, as Elsprague de Camp mentioned in the introduction, all three of them were pen pals, and their works really did influence each other and build upon each other, and they reference each other within their works as well. So the three really do fit nicely together, even though H.P. Lovecraft's stories seemingly shouldn't because they take place in the present, which is the 1910s and 1920s, uh, and Conan's and um, Clark Ashton Smith's do not. Right. Although they are theoretically in the our world in sort of the parade of prehistory. And um, that's actually called out in the uh, first essay, The Hyborian Age, mm-hmm. which is just a 
a wave of the sort of evolution and devolution of various human races up to the point of Conan, which is still unimaginably in our past, but he has an even deeper past that goes back to uh, later on, we'll read the stories of uh, King Cull Mm -hmm. and some of the other characters, and then going forward into what is now our uh, extreme past, like the Bran MacMorn stories, which are set in the the Roman era, Mm -hmm. but to us seem unimaginably distant. Yeah. Um, so, um, how would you characterize Conan in this story? He's uh, not necessarily what we think of as, you know, the Arnold Schwarzenegger bulky barbarian in, in the movies. That's true. And I feel like the kind of cliche barbarian is just bulging muscles, giant sword, not very bright, and wants to solve every problem with the swinging of a sword. And Conan is certainly some of those things, but he is not all of those things. Because Conan, for one thing, he's, he's not dumb. Conan's a very smart guy who's clever, and he thinks that he, 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 does, he, he does a good job of appraising his environment, figuring out what the correct thing to do in that situation is, but oftentimes it is swinging his sword. Uh, but also, I would say Conan is not just the... He, Conan's not a first edition fighting man as written. He is not a third edition barbarian as written. Because Conan also is very much a thief. Absolutely. And this, he's in there following the other thief character, uh, Taurus of Numidia. Is that correct? Or Yeah, Taurus of Numidia. Yeah, Taurus of Numidia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Conan and Taurus are you know, sneaking into this, this, this massive tower. They're climbing walls. They're, I don't believe they're picking locks at any point, but they're, they're being very thief-like. They're being uh, tricksy. They're uh, poisoning lions. And... Yes. He's got his magic. His, 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 it's not actually magical, but he's got his bag of kind of yellow spores or something that's made from the black lotus or the yellow lotus. I, just, I forget. I think there are a, a, a scintillation, scintillating <laughs> spectrum of lotuses in Robert E. Howard's fiction because I believe there's black lotus, there's a gray lotus in there somewhere. Uh-huh, there's a red lotus, uh, I think. Yeah, I don't know if there's a, you know, a purple lotus, but I, it feels like there should be. <laughs> and we end up meet when we do finally end up meeting Gag Kosha, who's supposed to be kind of the, you're, you're, it's, it's built up as though he is the, the kind of mastermind behind the tower. It turns out that really it's Yara, this priest, who has him under his control and has kind of kept him enslaved and is stealing magic from him. And looking at priests and kind of comparing them to clerics in Dungeons and Dragons, it seems like priests in appendix and literature, when they do have magical powers, they seem like they're the same thing as a, as a wizard or a sorcerer or a witch yeah, it seems like they maybe uh, function more on a sort of social role and that they're using their um, uh, importance in the societies to, you know, uh, extract power and wealth. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that there is there are godlike beings, but is, are they actually divine is completely unclear. Uh, yeah. Certainly in this case, he's the Yagkosha is not. And um, so we could certainly see there's almost an element of a Wizard of Oz-ness with the... Uh, with the various uh, religious characters in the Conan stories. Yeah, no doubt. And the beginning of the story, we do actually see really good examples of urban adventuring. The city is so kind of like vibrant and alive with lights and with um, shady individuals lurking in the shadows, drunken wenches and taverns. Uh, this is my favorite sentence. Native rogues were the dominant element. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And then there's there's Conan's, 
I don't know if fear is the right word, Dist dis distrust and distaste of civilization and sorcery both come through very well in this story. And I believe that's a constant theme uh, yeah. with Conan, although obviously ultimately he ends up a king and in charge of the greatest kingdom and greatest civilization of the Hyborian Age. So that's interesting that um, he, he gets comes full circle on this, but remains sort of both the an outsider character and not always the viewpoint character. This is why it's interesting. I think Tower of the Elephant he is, but uh, some of the other stories we'll be discussing, he's, he's actually seen from other perspectives, which is also quite interesting. Yeah, in Rogues in the House, we spend a lot of time with, uh, oh, what is his name? Uh, Marillo, the aristocrat. Because mm -hmm. what's happened here is there's this guy named Marillo, and he has become enemies with Nabonidus. Nabonidus? Uh, Nabonidus, yeah. Nabonidus, yeah. who is uh, the red priest. Right, another one of our corrupt priests. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely, uh, the Conan stories, there are lots of corrupt aristocrats and lots of corrupt priests. And in this case, the corrupt aristocrat and the corrupt priest are at, are at odds with one another. And and we'll have to say, at least uh, Marillo is interesting because he says he's described as being quite foppish, but not unbrave. <laughs> um, and, and it's actually an interesting character in his own right. And then we have another foppish aristocrat in the god and the bull because in that one we've got Astrius Petenius the aristocrat because the whole reason why Conan is there in the first place and he the reason why he's there to be blamed for this murder is that this aristocrat had hired Conan to break into this this palace or wherever they are and steal a specific artifact however when Conan is being blamed for the murder, the, arist the, the foppish aristocrat is in the room and he doesn't defend Conan and in fact starts to say, oh yeah, get him, you know, send him away. At which point Conan's like, okay, F this guy, you know, he's completely turned on me. So then he decapitates him right. <laughs> in front of everybody. This was also interesting because again, at the story, it began not from Conan's point of view, it becomes through the uh, point of view of Aris the Watchman, uh, who is mm. quite... Um, fearful initially. Um, and it is also because, again, we tend to think of Conan as being able to sort of hack through any number of foes, but he is uh, held at bay by Aris the Watchman, who we might characterize as a uh, zero level or at best first level character with a crossbow. Mm -hmm. um, so that there is that element of humanity and risk, um, and it's not pure uh, superhuman ubermensch wish fulfillment in yeah. the Conan stories, again, despite what, you know, sometimes how he is sometimes characterized. Mm-hmm. So looking at these stories, how much or, or what specifically do you think was taken from these stories and uh, used to build the first iteration of Dungeons and Dragons? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I do think that um, although they're not exactly dungeons, there is sort of a progression through a space in each of these stories um, towards sort of a uh, boss monster is too strong of a way to, to phrase it. But uh, in, in each case, he encounters some uh, unnatural creature. So, um, And that's certainly true in the very first story in the collection, which uh, was not by Howard, so you haven't read that one. But, you know, in it, like, he finds this cave, and in the cave there's a door, and he goes through the door, and it leads down a tunnel, and then he's kind of, like, going through these chambers and then encounters this corpse holding a sword on a throne, takes the sword, and ends up fighting him. That very much feels like a dungeon. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, he's in there. It's maybe um, not pure exploration the way that, uh, you know, B1 or B2, their early adventures in uh, Dungeons Dragons were, were written, in that he's going there for a very specific goal. In most cases, he's looking for a specific treasure um, or has been given a specific task. So in that sense, it's a little bit more uh, narrative rather than open world or sandboxy. But um, he is going through dark spaces. Uh, he's going from uh, one encounter to the next. Uh, for example, in Tower of the Elephant, they first have to cross the garden with all the uh, lions that, that are known to prowl through there, and then they climb the tower and come down through the roof of the tower. Um, so there's that element in there. Uh, God in the Bowl actually almost has a mystery element, which I kind of like mm-hmm. in terms of what is the God in the Bowl. I mean, we're not even initially aware that there is such a thing. We as the, the readers of the story know that there's something to be found, but not necessarily the characters in the story. And we don't even know why Conan's there for, for most of the short story as well. Right. So often, t- so for a big portion of the story, you're asking yourself, like, why, why was Conan here? Right, right. What is going on? Um, and in Rogues in the House, how Conan is brought into the story is quite amusing because he's been sold out by the uh, prostitute that he's basically hanging out with and he's been thrown in jail. And mm-hmm. so Marilla, Marilla chooses to use this opportunity to uh, you know, basically use Conan's muscle to fend off Nabonidus the priest. Um, now, Rogues in the House is terrific in the sense that there's tons of traps, which, again, is a, yes. a, a key element of early Dungeons & Dragons. Um, the sliding glass walls, the uh, more lotus in here. I forget which color lotus it was that drives the uh, mob mad in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, poison traps, uh, also uh, periscopes and mirrors. Um, that's actually an interesting element. I don't think we see much of that in sort of uh, dungeon crawls where people can sort of see into another space without magic. This is all purely mechanical. Mm-hmm. Um, Nabonidus is characterized as a brilliant engineer. And in general, in kind of swords and sandal stuff, I, I personally don't expect to encounter much technology. And the, the way the mirrors were described, I mean, they're, they're sitting in the sewers and they're watching what's happening in the rooms above. And Conan's completely perplexed how this is happening, but we're explained that it's done with, with tubes and with mirrors. <laughs> Seems a just rather re- dubious explanation. Well, just so remember, I'm going to call that technology. Well, just remember the internet is a series of tubes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. This is from our cup to the string to your ears. <laughs> <laughs> now, th- these stories are very different than what we were discussing in episode one. Because in episode one, you know, you've got, with, with the Harold Shea stories, you have dragons and unicorns and hippogriffs and all these like big fantastical beings. Where in the Conan stories, you've got wolves and lions and giant spiders and giant slugs. And you've got, granted, the, the, the god in the bowl is a giant snake with a woman's head. It's still a giant snake. Oh, and may I say, this was the, uh, the ending of that story was quite interesting because Conan basically flees in terror. <laughs> um, and that's certainly not what you expect from Conan. You know, it's um, maybe a practical aspect of the uh, gaming that um, maybe has disappeared in sort of more modern day games where the survival rates are much higher. Mm-hmm. And so I think certainly in, when you were playing low level play in the early D&D, it was never said that you should fight through to the end if it would result in a TPK. That's true. I really like the way that the gods are portrayed mm-hmm. in the Conan stories. Right. They're definitely alien. The psychology is alien. They're not sort of, um, you know, personifications of a, a human attributes like, say, the Greek gods are necessarily. Mm-hmm. And it's also unclear whether, I mean, there, there, there are demons and there are aliens who are potentially being worshipped as gods. 
And then you have the gods that people actually do worship, like Kram or Mitra. And it's really unclear whether those gods actually exist at all, or if they're just things that people have made up to make themselves feel better. There's actually an interesting line about the Sumerians and how they worship Krom, but that they do not practice uh, human sacrifice because they feel that Krom is indifferent to Mm -hmm. humanity as a whole. Yeah, there's actually a great paragraph on Krom uh, where Conan, we're talking about Conan's gods. His gods were simple and understandable. Krom was their chief, and he lived on a great mountain, whence he sent forth dooms and death. It was useless to call on Krom because he was a gloomy, savage god and he hated weaklings. But he gave a man courage of birth and the will and might to kill his enemies, which, in the Sumerian's mind, was all any god should be expected to do. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So you can pray pray all you want. Krom will not be answering your prayers. Yeah. Frequently when Conan mentions Krom, it's more just of an interjection than any sort of real level of belief, I Mm -hmm. would say. Krom. (laughs) And then with the magic system here, or maybe I shouldn't say system, because it's very very unclear how magic works in the Conan worlds. It certainly seems to be, to the extent that there is, it's more uh, ritual than anything that could be uh, visible effects and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, sparks flying out of fingers, magic missile, lightning bolt, fireball. Were Uh, there item or demon-based magic? Uh, we, 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 we certainly see that in this story, in, in these stories with the, the hand of Nurgle, which is not Conan, which is not a Robert E. Howard Conan. However, you know, you do have the, the, the magical object. And I know that from my other Conan stories I've read, that does come back again. I know that Tothamon has his, the ring of set, which comes up in later stories. Right. And I believe that was a rewrite of a, uh, call story later on. And we'll certainly, we'll be getting into call. Oh. Later on, um, Call was sort of almost a uh, dry run for Conan, but mm-hmm. it's quite quite a different character in his own right. And so when we get to that point, that'll be a fascinating examination of uh, the various sort of heroic tropes that uh, Robert E. Howard likes to put forth. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me how almost all of the enemies that Conan faces are either kind of more naturalistic, giant versions of animals, normal animals, or just other men. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, I wonder if that's sort of more of a uh, link to the contemporaneous adventure fiction that was going on as opposed to sort of the fantasy line that L. Sprague de Camp was trying to draw draw a line back through to. Um, certainly, again, Talbot Mundy, again, about Howard Fast, I'm sure I'm forgetting others. And again, uh, the vast body of work that Robert e. Howard wrote, he wrote Western stories, boxing stories, mm-hmm. um, straight-up horror stories. So I think he was um, drawing a lot, a lot of traditions that um, I'm not sure why El Sprague de Camp was maybe not emphasizing as much, or maybe he was just trying to legitimize fantasy by, by in that introduction. Again, I haven't read that particular introduction, so I don't want to put too much weight on my interpretation of it. But what do you think, Jeff? Well, I, I mean, El Sprague de Camp was putting together multiple collections of sword and sorcery fiction at the time and heroic fiction. I think... It was very much both in his it, it was in his personal interest just because that's stuff he was interested in and in his personal interest in the sense that he was writing in this world to make this the the world of science fiction and fantasy and heroic fantasy and sword and sorcery a kind of better understood and more accessible commodity. So yeah, certainly I think I think that's what he's doing in his introduction and that's what I think him and Lynn Carter 
and August Derleth in a lot of ways were doing by putting together these collections in the 1960s and 70s. Absolutely. And now that we've read uh, one Elsberg de Camp work earlier on, have you, are you able to sort of uh, tease out his literary contributions in terms of the style and content or some themes there that uh, pr- are present in this book? What I'll say about that is I've not read any Lynn Carter other than, and I know that's not what you're asking me, yeah. but I've not read any Lynn Carter other than what's in here. But because the Elsberg de Camp that I have read that's not Conan is so much better than the Conan Elspreg de Camp that I've read. I'm going to trust that the Lynn Carter stuff that he's written that's not Conan pastiches is also better than what I've read in here. Because the the Robert E. Howard Conan stories, they're fantastic. They're 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 alive and they're visceral. And like certainly uh, less so in these stories, but in other stories, there's very problematic stuff with race and 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 with the the treatment of women. Um, but that doesn't really come up as much in these particular stories. Um, Other than his revenge on the prostitute who turned him in by throwing her into a uh, cesspool. But he could have done a lot worse to her because basically he was under a death sentence. So he, he just threw her in the cesspool and, and laughed at her from the roof. <laughs> <laughs> and that was actually kind of a fun scene because yeah. sometimes Robert E. Howard refers to Conan as being somebody who loves to laugh and is very mirthful. Yeah. And I, I feel like you don't actually see a lot of that. And I guess that's the that's... Conan's version of a practical joke? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a Nelson Muntz ha-ha. <laughs> <laughs> but to get back to what you're asking, though, is when I read the Elsprague de Camp and the Lynn Carter Conan stories, they don't have that same vitality. Um, I don't know. They're, 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 they're just kind of mediocre. Yeah, I would definitely say uh, vitality is a great phrase. When I read Robert E. Howard, I feel like the page, the words are just, you know, pushing their way off the page. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's because of the speed at which he had to write, um, but as you say, it's very evocative. Um, there is probably a tendency, again, to sort of um, underestimate the sort of intelligence of Conan the character, and then by that extension of that, sort of underestimate the quality of the prose. It's not just the plots. It's the, lit- the actual quality of the prose in the Robert E. Howard stories, the, how evocative they are of the smells, the sounds, the the heat, the dust, you know. Um, as you said, that the urban landscape that he was presenting in these stories is, is terrific. Um, so certainly just as a pure stylist, Robert E. Howard is, is probably underestimated in this current day and age. I completely agree with that. I would say that the jury is out for me with uh, Elsprague de Camp at the moment. Uh, the Harold Chase stories I enjoyed a good deal. He did write those with Fletcher Pratt, though. And the Conan stories, I'm less enthused with. And I've, I actually haven't read anything that is just Elsprague de Camp yet. That's not a collaboration with somebody else. And it's not going to be until episode 16, when we read and discuss Elsprague de Camp's Less Darkness Fall, that that's going to happen. I am looking forward to finding out what Elsprague de Camp on his own is like. Mm-hmm. Um, would you say that, I mean, one thing I've noticed with the Elspreg the Camp characters, and maybe Fletcher Pratt's contribution, is that they usually are, are sort of the smartass, the smartest guy in the room. Mm-hmm. In the, these DeCamp Conan stories, do you get that, that feeling from Conan? Is he the smartest no, guy? No, I don't get that. With, with, with the Elspreg de Camp Conan stories, I feel like the, the, the character aspect of Conan seems to be largely missing. Conan feels to be more of a prop in moving the, the, the reader through the environment he wants you to see. 
Interesting. I wonder if uh, DeCamp actually was not able to sort of latch onto the character and doesn't have an actual connection, sort of visceral connection. I don't want to be make him sound like he's purely mercenary in this aspect. We don't know. I mean, certainly he was... If he had not, he and Carter had not put the series together, I think most of us would not have read Conan, and he would not have become anywhere near as popular. Um, so he certainly deserves credit for that. But I know oh, yeah. that in the the realm of Robert E. Howard fandom, he is a very controversial figure. The same way that August Derleth is a very controversial figure in the Howard Phillips, H.P. Uh, Lovecraft. I don't know why I keep on saying Howard Phillips. H.P. <laughs> Lovecraft uh, uh, literary history. That's true. He certainly is. So, Jeff, I thought another interesting aspect of uh, both of the collections we're looking at is the essay, The Hyborian Age. Um, can you talk about, about that a little bit for us? Sure. It's kind of the ultimate info dump. Uh, I, I remember when I was a kid and I would get like a Forgotten Realms second edition book and there would just be, you know, 30 pages of, like, the history of, like, a specific region, and my eyes would just kind of glaze over, and I'd be like, am I really expected to remember all this and use all of this? And I remember it, it felt very kind of overwhelming. And I would say that the Hyborian Age, in some ways, just kind of feels like a lot of that <laughs> to me. <laughs> you know, it's like every single sentence is like, and then these people moved over to this part, and then there was this great catastrophe, and these mountains rose, and this sea this sea dried up and then this sea was created and these people were drowned. And Right. And to be fair, this was never intended for publication. This was uh, Howard's attempt to sort of world build for his own sake so that he could create real ver- verisimilitude in his own writing and that he was never really uh, expressing all of these things in the, the prose. Mm-hmm. You know, he was just mentioning, oh, here's the Zingarans and then that would be it. But in his mind, he had a clear picture of who the Zingarans were by having created this essay in the first place. Yeah. Um, but from the standpoint of the actual world building, is there anything we can take away from this? One thing that I think is interesting about it is just the sheer number of, like, kind of the type of human populations that we have. And it reminds me a lot of the Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea, very much inspired by Clark Ashton Smith, Robert E. Howard, and H.P. Lovecraft, in that you don't have elves and dwarves and halflings and races of lizard men living in the swamps and, you know. Although there's plenty of ape men. There's or, plenty of ape men, yes. Or people but, becoming ape men and then re-rising to humanity. But those are often kind of portrayed as humans who have devolved back to a, an ape-like state or that they're another strain of the sapien line that hasn't quite developed to our level yet. I, I, I feel like they're very closely related to us. Right, right. Now, I think some people would see all this sort of emphasis on, he, he mentions types, you know, blonde-haired and gray-eyed, or these sure. people are, you know, hook-nosed and, you know. So these are clearly analogs of stereotypes of real, uh, real-world real ethnic groups. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how does that make you respond when you're reading this essay here? I don't personally take any issue with that. I mean, Forgotten Realms was kind of doing the exact same thing, too. You've got your kind of Asian continents to the east and um, and your Aztec world across the, the great ocean. Uh, I don't think that's anything new to fantasy. I don't personally find it very exciting in terms of world building, um, but I don't find it offensive either. Right. And to be clear, when when... 
Robert Howard says something is savage or you know rough in the various. That's not a value judgment because obviously Conan is a, a character who is basically a savage from the standpoint of most of the other civilized characters in there. So um, it, it's interesting in that regard, and it is interesting that maybe people might take issue with. Um, him characterizing this, but then would have no problem with saying, oh, and over here are the elves, and the elves are all like this, and over here are the halflings, and the halflings are like this, and all dwarves can sniff gold and are basically miniature Viking Scotsmen. And, you know, um, so I certainly think that there is no um, greater level of sort of uh, typecasting in this essay mm -hmm. than um, in many other sort of attempts at fantasy world building. Yeah, I, I could see that. I could also see the flip side of that being... You know, well, there are no elves in the real world to be offended by the way that elves are being described in the story where you do potentially have, you know, people from other cultures who might be offended by the way something's described. But, you know, I, I would say that in the Hyborian Age essay, I don't I didn't personally find anything that made me uncomfortable. And certainly down the road when we're going to be reading things like Queen of the Black Coast, which is a fantastic Robert E. Howard story and also has some pretty problematic descriptions of black people in it um, we can discuss that kind of stuff more when we encounter that stuff but in in the essay itself i did not find anything that made me uncomfortable mm -hmm. and one thing that i th did think was neat about it was that it was very clear that in certain parts of the world i don't want to say that magic existed in certain parts and not in others because that's not necessarily true but you you get the sense that down in like stygia or stygia um, I believe Stygia, but Stygia. everyone, you know, Stygia. Like down Stygia. in Stygia, the, the Stygians are still very much um, in contact with, corrupted by, in the service of dark entities that because of that, they have access to powers that other people can't understand or comprehend. And I do think the the idea of areas where that kind of stuff is more prevalent and areas where that stuff is less prevalent is interesting in world building. Absolutely. And the Stygians, and, uh, for those of you who are following at home, are sort of the Egyptian analog mm -hmm. uh, characters in the, uh, this Hyborian age. Um, although it's, it's not always a one-to-one -one characterization. So it's, uh, he's, uh, Robert D. Howard is a little bit more sophisticated than that when he's kind of creating these past cultures. That's true. And Set is kind of the main god of the Stygians. And Set was an Egyptian god. But the set of the Egyptian pantheon is very different than the set that we encounter in fantasy literature usually. Because, and maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't even think set in the Egyptian mythology was even snake related. Uh, I do not recall. Uh, I believe there is, he was a jackal, uh, certainly. Yeah. Um, and certainly snakes were not necessarily considered uh automatically evil figures in ancient religion. Often they're considered symbols of wisdom. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, if he mentions Atlantis in here, and we tend to think of Atlantis as being the height of this sophisticated ancient civilization. But in this case, the Atlanteans are actually a race that degenerated back to sort of almost ape-like state before regenerating themselves to humanity. Uh, the Picts are a frequent uh, trope that he uses. Um, who always seem to be savage, and they never quite seem to crawl up to peak humanity as such. Um, but he, I, mean, I think maybe he just liked that word because you see that the picks used here in the Hyborian Age, in the Cull stories, and then later on the real-life picks in the Bran McMoran story. I should say the historical era picks, not necessarily the real-life picks in the Bran McMoran stories of, uh, set in the uh, Roman era. Great. And um, looking at Set and the 
the snake magic or whatever, and then looking at the god in the bowl and our, you know, snake god or whatever with the female head, uh, I think it's easy to draw a direct connection between that and what ended up becoming the Yuan-Ti or the Yan-Ti. I'm not sure how people usually say it. Um, but I, I don't really know how early in D&D those monsters showed up because are, are, are they even in the first edition or is that later i do not recall i wish i had my uh dungeon master's guide here but it's buried in some attic somewhere in the various houses i've lived in <laughs> yeah i don't have mine on me i mean i, I guess i te- technically have access to my uh, pdf of I, it right here i meant monster manual by the way but <laughs> uh, but i do remember they, they were in the second edition uh but really that's probably the only like fantastical beast that we encounter in here uh, but going through the stories that we've read and that are that we're discussing today, Hoy, are there any things that you think you could take out of them to bring into your own games? Um, certainly, I think that um, s- sometimes we lose the idea of setting mood and tone, and so uh, we think of it just more as a go here, do this, sort of a tactical uh, situation. And if you look at the sort of... Um, what they go through in terms of the spaces they move through, they would be quite simple. They're not mega dungeons or anything like that they're creating, but it's very evocative in terms of mood and that the fact that they don't know what they're getting into next as they go from this space to the next space. They have a sense, but they don't like, oh, okay, if I was just going to listen at this door, go, you know, they're not doing the sort of uh, very mechanistic thing that dungeon delvers tend to do. Okay, I listened at the door. I probe with my 10-foot pole. Um, it is more... Uh, directly adventurous than that. So I think that um, as, uh, you know, game masters, I think we could certainly hustle the games along if we want and say, okay, moving along and, you know, create the mood. It's very dark. Um, And if we don't necessarily uh, punish the players for not doing every single smart tactical thing that uh, frequently they do in gaming, you say, okay, and just sort of bring back that sense of mystery and adventure um, I think that we would be well rewarded. Yeah. And so that certainly, I think, is a, a, a thing we can take away from these three stories in particular. I like that. Another thing that I've been thinking about is how sometimes the the rules as written don't really allow for some of the kind of Conan style of adventuring. Um, for example, the Naked Barbarian is not really a... I mean, it's it's definitely a staple in in heroic fantasy and swords and sorcery. But when you're playing Dungeons and Dragons, for example, it's it's kind of foolish to be walking around without armor. Uh, and there are other game systems that, you know, do armor as damage reduction or whatever. But even so, you're, it, it seems like there really is very little drawback to armor and really no benefit to not having armor. And I know if you want to play a more realistic game, then sure, absolutely, that makes sense. But for me, I personally, I, I like kind of the, the, high, the high pulp in my, in my adventuring. Mm-hmm. And I would like to maybe figure out a way where mechanically you can encourage something like that. And I know one thing that's becoming more popular is the idea of letting people add, add like their reflex save to their... AC, as long as they're not wearing armor, and other ideas like that. But even those, like, still kind of don't quite hit the mark for me. Because so the, even at low levels, you're still, it doesn't make sense for you to not 
put on the best armor you can find. Certainly from a system point of view, uh, the sort of Dungeons & Dragons and its descendants um, are not perfect at modeling this kind of uh, adventure fiction. Um, I think then it becomes incumbent, obviously, on the game master to say, you know, it really would be practical if you want to sneak through here to, you know, take off the armor. And then if the player opts to do that, then to not punish them for doing the thing that makes sense for the story and the mm-hmm. tactical situation. Um, and we talked, I think, maybe in one of the previous episodes how RuneQuest was sort of a reaction to that, um, you know, the armored up. I mean, it still was very practical to have armor, but, you know, you had a role. If you didn't have armor, it had its its rewards. And I think the only other game that I can think of that does that reasonably well is GURPS. Um, but that's obviously another uh, very deep well to dive into. So Sure. Um, but I, yes, I think, um, obviously again, in fiction, uh, we are not always seeing sort of large parties that are very common at the gaming table. Um, but this could be an example of this. It's not always Conan solo because, um, the first story, uh, Tower of the Elephant, he's there with Taurus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Murillo is sort of his companion and even Nabonidus, who's their enemy at one point in, uh, Rogues in the House becomes sort of a member of the party when they're cornered by Thak. Yeah, um, he's their ally while they're trying to get right, to the house very at least. Sort of, And, uh, so I think that, uh, it may lead for a good example of how to run a situation when you have only two or three players show up at your table yeah. and to think about, okay, well, let me, let me adjust the, the level here. There's really only one monster. It's a bunch of traps, uh, but there's really only one monster in each of these stories. Or also, it might give you inspiration for a game that you plan to only run with two or three players. Mm-hmm. Like, maybe it's not even like, a, oh, if people don't show up. Having a game where you're running for just two or three players is also a totally viable option that you can have fun with. Right. Um, I have not played this yet, but there is a game set by Kevin Crawford called uh, Scarlet Heroes, which is basically an overlay for other D20 games that allows you to play a single low-level character at a very heroic level without sort of breaking the system. So mm-hmm. that might be worth looking into at some point to allow us to sort of model this. And um, I think DCC, uh, you know, does this reasonably well, better than some of the other games with the low-level characters since they have sort of the flexibility of the the mighty deeds or the luck rolls and stuff like that mm-hmm. to sort of simulate this a little bit better than sort of the sort of more classical D&D systems. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that because uh, Conan certainly... He's not limited with one or two feats. Conan is is able to kind of get away with whatever it is he wants to do. If he wants to push you off a ledge or if he wants to knock your, your weapon out of your hand or if he wants to decapitate you in a single blow, these are all things that he can reasonably accomplish. Right. So you don't have to build, optimize a build for Conan. You, if you're playing the Dungeon <laughs> Call Classic game, then you would use the deed die yeah. um, and then sort of reward sort of the creativity of the player in this case, um, which I think is terrific. Um, and uh, mentioning Conan in DCC context, I believe Daniel Bishop did a, a quite a nice write-up of uh, an interpretation of Conan on his blog. So that, uh, if we can find a link to that, that might be worth putting in the show notes. Oh, yeah, that's great. Absolutely. Yeah. Another thing that I thought was interesting from the stories is oftentimes at the very end of the story, it happened in at least two of these, Conan is faced with lots and lots of treasure that he could be taking or is offered to, you know, here, take a chest of treasure. And he's like, I don't want to be shackled by your your chains and your 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 uh, large amounts of loot or whatever. And he just ends up just taking like a woman and like a bag of coins because uh, he wants to be free to roam. Right. 
You can't pin me down, man. Yeah. We're in a in a D&D game or a DCC game. I have a really hard time envisioning the 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 player or the characters turning down vast amounts of wealth. Right. They'll 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 go that last step and almost get to a TPK to get that last coin that they see glinting in the darkness over there. And that's one thing that's funny to me about how Inventory management of Dungeons and Dragons and Dungeon Crawl Classics and um, all of those kinds of like D20 based um, high fantasy stories. We're almost more high pulp with our inventory management than the stories are. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes the characters in these stories, they have almost nothing on them. And they're constantly having their, they're, they're being separated from their gear. They're walking around like through the darkness without even a torch and just holding on to their sword and have nothing else in the world. And then when they do get access to lots of gold, like they don't they don't want to like be dragging these chests around. Where in oftentimes in D D, we have kind of this like implied bag of holding where they're they've got this backpack on them that never seems to get wet or ne- they never seem to lose or it never seems to hinder them while they're fighting. Right, right. I believe Gygax at his table was quite strict about this, but this is one of the things that people would tend to gloss over. And I remember in the player's handbook in DMG, he was quite clear that, you know, you should keep good records both from time and inventory of goods. Um, but I don't know if that was just interfering with the fantasy or if it was just one more detail that was too much. Um, I think a couple of systems do this rather well, though. I think uh, Lamentations of the Flame Princess actually has a very good encumbrance system, um, and that may be worth looking at. But um, DCC very specifically says, you know, um, other than the armor, um, you will find a system that basically works for you. Sure. Use common sense. Yeah. Um, but certainly, uh, if there's one thing players hate, is that once they've picked something up to be separated from it at any point, we can count on maybe an outright rebellion at the table if you, t- <laughs> <laughs> you take away their plus one sword. That's true. Unless they can trade up, of course. So I feel like we've kind of covered everything that we need to go over today, unless there's anything else that you would like to add to this. No, I think uh, there's a, a ton of these books in particular. Uh, the actual number of Conan stories, I believe, was about, say, 30 stories. I'm not, I don't want to swear to that. Um, so in the Del Rey collection, there's two more uh, trade paperbacks um, after the uh, coming of Conan, which is uh, Bloody Crown of Conan and... Uh, well, Bloody Crown of Conan, I forget the other title. Um, but certainly uh, very, very readable. But uh, we will be... Pursuing it from both angles, I will continue to read the Del Rey series, and uh, Jeff will be continuing to read the Lancer series. And if I, I get unlazy, I will pick up a few of the Lancers as well. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> so that he can join me in reading the mediocre, non-Howard Conan stories. There you go. Uh, but in a sense, maybe that is also um, maybe useful from purely uh, gaming sense of view, uh, if not a literary sense of view. So we'll see how that goes. Because I would say, interestingly, although the... Howard's stories are so much better in terms of reading. The the Elspreg de Camp and Lynn Carter ones do lend themselves to gaming as well or possibly better. Sometimes maybe the situation is that you look at that and you say, Oh, I could do better than that. Or you sort of <laughs> or maybe you see the rigging a little bit more obviously, so it's easier to sort of structure around that. Whereas yeah. with um, Howard's actual stories, the, the pace is just so headlong that you, you know, it's hard to sort of mechanically break it down and say, oh, here's where this happens and here's where this happens. If you have any thoughts or opinions about any of this or would like to contact us in general, you can send us an email. 
at the Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. Appendix N Book Club at gmail.com. We will read every single email. We're still undecided whether we'll have a reader mail segment, but uh, send us the email. And if you insist, we will read them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Hoy, what books do we have coming up next? Uh, next up will be Swords and Deviltry by Fritz Leiber. And after that is The Dying Earth by Jack Vance. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Read on or see you in the stacks. (laughs) 